Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of the sins through his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Lorraine. Friends, I'd like to invite you to look at the remaining four verses verses 44 through 48. If you'd like to pick up a copy of the Bible and follow along with me, those of you online, let's do the same. We'll go to Acts 10 and we'll look at verses 44 through 48, those remaining verses. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. And because today is World Communion Sunday, I thought it wise that instead of moving ahead with our Nehemiah reading, that we would just hit the pause button for one Sunday and reflect on Peter's experience with God and with people who were different from him. And my goal this morning is to identify from our reading the specific sources of Peter's heart change. And that's one way to describe it. 
So let us pray. Dear God, we pray that our hearts also would be changed, that you would change us from the inside out, because you know the hard, unrepentant areas of our lives. They're ever before you. And so come, Holy Spirit, just as you fell on those people in Cornelius' home, come now, Holy Spirit, and fall upon us so that we can do the things that you want to do in and through us. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I was literally on the verge of completing my time at Duke, and I was asked to interview for a position as pastor at a church in North Carolina. We initially did a couple of phone screens, and then the PNC decided that they wanted to have a face-to-face -face meeting. And I know it sounds odd, but they decided to come up to Durham and they would meet me at a Red Lobster restaurant. <laughs> it's true. I arrived at the restaurant early and positioned myself in such a way that I could see the parking lot and I could see who was coming through the main door of the restaurant. And before long, they arrived, six people, getting out of their vehicles with manila folders in their hand. And they came through that door and started sort of surveying the restaurant, looking for someone, and I just knew they were looking for me. I knew it was the PNC. So I got up and I went over to them and I introduced myself. And I immediately saw startled faces. And I knew what that meant. I led them back to the table that the host had prepared for all of us, and we ordered lunch, and we engaged in some, what I would call, awkward banter. Once lunch was over, the chair of the committee said these words, and I still remember them. He said, Reverend, we just have to be honest with you. We have not had a black man live in our side of town since Reconstruction. So this is not going to work. And I felt sad for myself, but I felt sad for them. Because at this stage of my life, I knew something about the light of the gospel. I knew something about the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection for Jews and for Gentiles and for men and women and for people of all cultures and all ethnicities. And I felt sad for them because that light was not shining very brightly. I do need to say one thing, which I didn't say in that initial service this morning. These people weren't fire-breathing anti-black people, they were not. These people were captured by their culture. They were captured by their community. And they didn't think they had it in them to go against the grain. I felt sad for them. 
And the incident reminded me of that line from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail where he writes, there was a time when the church was very powerful, a time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believe or believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and the principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat. It transformed, changed the temperature, influenced society. So I felt sad that day. One more story. Still living in Durham. We really wanted to stay in North Carolina. And I was invited to guest preach at a Methodist church. Before the service starts, I got there early. We were in the pastor's office. We were talking. And he just opened up to me. And he told me that there was a time in this church's history when the ushers would bar people like me from attending worship. He pointed out the window, and I looked out the window, and there was a cemetery. And he said, you know, you need to know there was a time when this church would never allow any person other than the people of that church to be buried on those grounds out there. He said, we've come a long way. And he's right. But I still felt shocked, and I still felt sad inside regarding the history of God's church here in this country. But it happens over and over again. The church in Germany, you could go country after country and hear stories of compromise. And that's why today's reading is so important because today's reading spotlights what I call the rift between Jews and Gentiles. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, was this rift caused by racism? Think about that. So what you're seeing on the screen is a quote from a wonderful book written by a pastor who at one time was pastoring a church up in Minneapolis. His name is John Piper. The book is called Bloodlines. And he offers up what his definition of racism, and I, and I offer it to you for your own contemplation. He says racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over another race. Is this racism based on that definition? And we could still say no. So if it's not racism, then what's causing the rift? Maybe there's another ism. Racism came into widespread usage in the Western world in the 1930s when it was used to describe the social and the political ideology of Nazism. So it's a fairly modern word which treated race as a naturally given political unit. So what's the other ism, Pastor? Well, it's possible that 
Peter was under the thrall of ethnocentrism, the attitude or the belief that one's own group, one's ethnicity or nationality is superior to others. But I'm saying to you this morning that it doesn't matter. However we interpret Peter's action, Houston, we have a problem. When one group of people act superior and dismissive and they separate themselves from another group of people for ethnic or racial reasons, causes, that is a sin. We have a problem. But I'm here this morning not to belabor the problem. I'm here to celebrate what the scriptures lift up as the solution. How was Peter's heart changed? What happened? And I would offer to you that the answer is found in the Nicene Creed. I would offer to you that the answer is found even in that hymn we were just singing this morning. That we were just singing about praise ye the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Ponder anew. And that's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to ponder anew what the Almighty can do when his love takes up residence within us. And so I would suggest to you that Peter's heart was changed by God as our Father and Creator. It was changed by God the Son. Peter's heart was ransacked and changed by God the Holy Spirit. What did God the Father do? If you have your Bibles open, just look again at verses 1 and 2. God listened to the prayers of a Gentile. Cornelius was an enemy, a centurion, a Roman soldier. But he's also described as a devout man who feared God with all his household and one who gave alms generously to the people. And I love this line, and he prayed continually to God and God heard his prayers, and God hears all prayers, and God responded to his prayers, and God sent an angel, and the angel showed Peter, I'm sorry, God, God sent an angel to Cornelius and told him to send some of his men to Joppa and bring Peter back to Caesarea. What else did God do? God heard the prayer of a Jew. And while Peter was praying, even as God is at work down the street, in, in, up the street in Caesarea, Peter is down the coastline in Joppa. He's on a roof of a friend's house, and he's praying, and God heard his prayer, and God showed him a vision of unclean animals, and God told him, Peter, get up and kill and eat. And Peter said, Lord, no, I can't do that. I cannot violate these laws that you gave to us in the Pentateuch. And while that exchange is going on, the men from Joppa, the men from Caesarea arrive in Joppa. Peter is alerted. He goes down to them. He receives them. The next day, he's on his way with them up the coast to meet this man named Cornelius in verses 24 through 33, if you still have your Bibles open, you will see what happened. Peter arrives at the house, 
never been to this house, never been in this man's house, doesn't know the man, but he arrives because God told him to. He goes in, he sees that the house is filled with people, Cornelius' family and his employees and his friends. And it is here in verse 28 that Peter makes the most startling confession. He says, you yourselves know. They had their version of the Jim Crow laws. You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me. And what I told the people in the first service, I'm telling you in the second service, if you have your Bible, go ahead and underscore that line. If you're using the church's Bible, don't mark it. <laughs> Put it in your notes. But that's what God was doing, friends. God just lifted the cloud. God opened his mind. That's really what it means. God shone a light. God showed him. And look at what he said. I should not call anyone profane or unclean. I think this is the heart of the problem that would face not only Peter, but all the leaders in the church. If you turn over to chapter 11, you will see when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, they're criticizing him. Have you lost your mind? What are you doing with those Gentiles? This is a critical moment for the church. And if they fumbled that ball, I would offer to you that the church's mission from Jerusalem, Judea, to the Samaria, to the ends of the earth would be in jeopardy. But God was on the move. And God opened Peter's mind, and somewhere, somewhere between Joppa and Caesarea, Peter had an eureka moment. And you'll see it in verses 34 and 35. Peter began to speak to them, and I think he's genuine when he says it. I truly understand. In other words, I get it. My mind is now open. My attitude has been right-sized. I truly understand that. God shows no partiality. And the word there, partiality, is a very important word. It means face. It comes from a Greek word that means face. God doesn't look at faces. God doesn't evaluate people based on their appearance. But in every nation, anyone, anyone who fears God who does what is right, God throws out the welcome mat. That's what God did. What did God the Son do? Look at verses 36 through 43. Peter then says that Jesus came and he preached peace. There are a lot of people in our culture who are coming saying that they have the answer to America, but they're not preaching peace. They're not preaching concord. They're not bringing us together. They're dividing us. But when God the Son came, he came preaching peace. He was bringing people together. He preached to those who were far away, the Gentiles. He preached to those who were near, the Jews, and he brought them together. How did he do it? Peter says that he came in the power of the Holy Spirit and he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. But they put him to death on a tree, and they buried him, Peter says. 
But God the Father raised him on the third day and allowed him to be seen by a small circle of his followers. And then he sent his witnesses out to preach that good news to the people and to testify that indeed, as we heard in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And Jesus makes this awesome promise that everyone, there it is, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. That's what Jesus did. And what did the Holy Spirit do? You'll see that in verses 44 through 48, if you still have your Bibles open. And to sum it up, I would say Pentecost 2.0 happened. Because while Peter was still speaking, and don't you love that? It sounds like what happened in Acts chapter 2, while the people were praying, suddenly, while Peter was still speaking, suddenly, the Holy Spirit, imagine, suddenly, the rain starts falling upon all who heard the word. All who heard the word. Notice the reaction. The circumcised believers, also known as Jews, who had come with Peter, they, had no, they didn't have a clue what was going on. They just went with Peter. They were astounded. In other words, they stood up and took notice that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Why? Because God doesn't respect faces. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter said, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And of course, the answer is a resounding no. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And don't, don't miss this now. If you have your Bible, underline this last sentence. If you're using the church's Bible, don't mark it. Write it in your notes. Then they invited him to stay for several days. We've come a long way, haven't we, in that short time. Peter says, what am I doing here? You know I shouldn't be in your house. And after God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit changes heart, now they're spending several days together breaking bread together. Only God can do that. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and the theologian, said that the only way and I agree with him, friends. The only way we can see people without any discrimination is to see them in the presence of where? The presence of God. Only in the presence of God is there eternal equality between person and person. If everyone had this vision, listen, this is, this is 18th century, 19th century Soren Kierkegaard saying, Words that are so apropos for 21st century believers. If everyone had this vision of seeing people in the presence of God, then there could be, there could be a fundamental transformation of the world. Let me bring you back to what John Piper says about this in Bloodlines. Look at that quote. The death and the resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. And he bases that primarily on Ephesians chapter 2. And so the solution to the sins of xenophobia, to the problems of America, to our penchant for ethnocentrism, to our 
the easy way in which we dismiss people. The solution that we're hearing in the scriptures this morning is that it's theological and it is social. Theological in this sense, that only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ goes deep enough, goes far enough to change our lives. Legislation, laws are important, but they just don't go far enough to change our propensity to sin. I'm reading a new biography of Martin Luther King written by a man called Jonathan Eig. And in reading the book, it's becoming clear to me that the 13th Amendment ratified in 1865, yes, it abolished slavery throughout the United States, but the question we've got to ask ourselves is, did slavery then end in January of 1865? I'll let you answer that. Did you know that because of human trafficking, there are more enslaved people today than in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries? It's estimated that internationally around the world, there are between 20 and 40 million people who are being trafficked in modern-day slavery today. We got the law, but the law isn't touching the heart. The 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868, granted citizenship to all people born or naturalized in the U.S., people like me, including formerly enslaved individuals, and guaranteed, guaranteed equal protection under the law. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, are people being treated equally because of this law? We passed the law, but we can't change the heart. The 15th Amendment, ratified in 1870, prohibited the denial of the right to vote based on race or color. Were people free to vote? If you're a student of American history, your answer is no. And that's why even though we had that 13th, 15th Amendment on the book, we still had to then in 1965 pass the Voting Rights Act, Act trying to eliminate racial discrimination in the voting booth. We can change the laws, brothers and sisters, and we should. And we should pray for our legislators that God would continue to enable them to bring laws, just laws. But we've got we've to drink a dose of realism. Laws cannot change the heart. It's theological. Only God can change a heart of stone into a tender, repentant heart. And that's the miracle that Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit continues to do. He did it for Peter. It's theological, and finally, it is social. When God called you and God called me, he didn't call us to start the church of Ray Hilton or the church of you. He called us into the one body of Jesus Christ, a new community. And so I believe that in this pregnant moment where we find ourselves as a, as a country, where the problems of this day are so great, where some of us are afraid to leave our homes because there is so much hate and violence in the street, this is the moment to which God has called us. We, the church, must lead the way. 
We, the church, must show this hurting world that it is possible that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ can take a group of people and transform them to such a degree that they now call each other brother and sister. And it's not just simple words. These words are real. Revelation 5 and verse 9, at the very end of the Bible, we see this picture finally of what God's new community looks like. Speaking of Jesus, by your blood, you ransomed for saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. I said that so fast, right? God ransomed every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God and they will reign on earth. That's the new community, brothers and sisters. And so I say to you, National, because this is our context, I say to you that we then must lead the way. No human being in this church is going to be seen as common or unclean. None who are, comes to this church, whether in this church or when we are the church scattered, none is to be spurned and shunned, rejected, despised, because of their ethnic origin or race or culture or their physical traits. Christians then should have no part, no part in the pernicious rise of renewed racism that is cropping up around our land and it's coming now in the latest form of these white supremacist groups and they're all coated with a patina of Christianity. National, we must lead the way. Cornelius would not have been saved if no one had taken him the gospel, and no one will be saved today without the gospel. We must lead the way in our passion and our compassion to see others come to know Jesus. And we must lead the way, National. We must. We must wash our minds wash our mouths of all, all racial slurs and ethnic put-downs. Doesn't matter who's doing it, whether it's coming from the White House, whether it's coming from the poor house, we're never gonna be a part of that. We're gonna wash our minds and our mouths of those ways of referring to people, and we're gonna be done with all of that alienating behavior, and we're gonna lead the way. So let's be the Good Samaritan for some ethnic outcast. Let's be Christ for some untouchable leper, brothers and sisters, and let's be Peter, because there are Corneliuses all over the DMV who are waiting, crying out to God, and God might just send you to announce good news to the Corneliuses of our world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this moment that we have to demonstrate the oneness of this body, that you led the way, you gave your life for us, you gave your body, and when we eat the bread, Lord, may we remember our oneness in you in the body of Christ. When we drink from the cup, may we be reminded of that one cup, that all of us come to you as sinners saved by grace. We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. 
If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.